Welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. We have an action-packed and star-studded cast for you today here on the program. Uh, I'm actually going to try and waste no time. It is because we have so much awesomeness on the show. First, I will uh, uh, welcome uh, Stefan Hoster, my co-hoster, uh, my co-host uh, to the show. I kind of like co-stetter. Co-stetter? Yeah. There we go. That's your, new, no. that's your new thing. And also uh, auditing today is uh, M.A. Ma from Step Up Canada. Good morning, M.A. Great to be here. Um, we're going to uh, get right into it uh, in just a moment. We're going to have uh, Mark Bury on the phone. Mark Bury is the author, is a well, he's a historian and a uh, parliamentary, uh, parliamentary journalist and the author most recently of Killing the Messenger, Stephen Harper's War on Your Right to Know. We will be speaking to him on the phone in just a moment. After that, we have an interview that I did actually on Wednesday with Dr. Mike, uh, Matthew Rimmer who is a, uh, from the University of Queensland uh, in Australia, who is a uh, trade law expert uh, and instructor on that topic, who is going to be getting into the, some of the details, some of the need-to-know things, what's true, what's not true. There's been a lot of rumors, been a lot of fear about the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He's going to set us straight on what we at least know at the moment and what the deal could mean from the bits that we are at least even aware of at this point. That will be coming up. And then, of course, we have a final comment section where we'll be talking a little bit more in the studio. And I have a giant list of news. We'll see what M.A. and Stefan decide is their most interesting stories from what I've given them from my giant, giant list of stories this week. That'll be coming up later in the program. However, right now, I believe we do have Mark on the phone. Good morning, Mark. Hi. Thank you so much for taking some time to join us uh, today. Um, it's uh, an absolute pleasure. I want to just say as well that uh, we were uh, recommended to speak to you by a big fan of the show uh, who likes to uh, email me with quotes from your book. So obviously a couple of fans. Um, can you please start by just telling us a little bit about your background before we get into the book? Um, I have a PhD in history. Uh, my area of expertise in, in that was on uh, censorship during wartime. Um, but I adapted the ideas of censorship and propaganda to fit modern Canada. But to basically stick uh, Harper's government and the things it's done and put them under the, the microscope of, of censorship concepts and historical censorship. It sounds boring as hell, but what I do is I take a look at how, uh, how Harper controls the news. <laughs> so I was listening in, in preparation for this. Um, I've, I've been reading little clips from your book. I haven't been able to get through the whole thing, but uh, I, I've been seeing little bits and pieces. Uh, and in preparation, I was also this morning, I just li quickly li uh, listened to a CBC interview that you did uh, that was just following an interview with Mrs. Harper, um, where they talked about um, the 24-7. The Do you want to maybe just re uh, retell that story a little bit about what's the 24-7, the, uh, the Stephen Harper show? <laughs> 24-7 uh, is, is uh, something that's even more boring than my book. It's, um, <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's camera people who follow Stephen Harper around in a, in a kind of sick North Korean way, uh, film his life. Um, I think Scientologists buy into this, too. Film his life and then put it on TV on a, on a, on a, on a website as sort of official television of, of, of Harper's life with sh shots showing that he is not, in fact, a cyborg. Um, pictures of him <laughs> with uneaten kittens, uh, chinchillas, <laughs> unskinned, unskinned chinchillas, uh, that sort of thing. Pictures of him with the alleged children and um, <laughs> and pictures of him driving around in black SUVs with tinted windows. Mm. And this basically, in my world, uh, is news replacement where you, where you delegitimize the real media and replace it with path. And it's exactly what you do in any dictatorship. 
So I, I want to ask you about one more thing uh, on that train of thought before we dig a little bit into the uh, content of your uh, of your book, which sure. was the um, a topic that's that's discussed in sort of the independent media, both in uh, Canada and the United States, quite frequently, is the seeming maybe frustrating. Uh, attempt to appear neutral when there's a difference between being objective and, and neutrality, which, you know, one, one is to say to one is to not take sides and, and try and ask questions. And, and the other one is to basically accept as whole truth anything any politician says ever and not question it. Uh, I feel like you probably would have some some comments on that on the state of that in Canada. Is that a serious problem in our in our media right now? Yeah, there's a third criteria that I when I teach journalism, which I'm pretty much not allowed to do anymore. But I talk about fairness. And I say, okay, are you being fair? Do you know that you're being uh, dishonest in some way in the way that you're writing about someone? So that doesn't mean you pretend you're a machine, um, and it doesn't mean you uh, look for both sides. Yes, uh, Auschwitz was terrible, but look, it was a great, uh, you know, it really perked up the German chemical industry. You know, that kind of, uh, you know, the glass is half empty, half full nonsense that we see throughout most of the media these days. Mm. Um, and uh, I think fairness is something that's missing from a lot of media. I think um, that the that the concepts of, of what people think of our objectivity are, are actually grossly unfair to the public. And there really is this half half empty, half full uh, business where, yeah, it's terrible, but we will find a silver lining somewhere in this dark, dark cloud. And that's what you see mostly on TV news shows. And that's why you see people, you know, basically shouting at each other in these panels and pretending to have different sides on an issue when, in fact, whole areas of important policies are not discussed at all. Mm. So with reference to now moving into the topic of your book, I think there's a direct correlation there. I, I want to ask, ask you first about the title. Um, we've covered um, the so-called war on science in this country for quite some time. Uh, so I don't in any way necessarily do disagree. Uh, but I would say it's a, it's a strong title, Killing the Messenger, Stephen Harper's War on Your Right to Know. That's, so yeah. I, I have to ask you, uh, uh, is that a provocative title to get to sell books? Or, or d- does you really feel like there's an actual war on intellectualism in this country? I thought this uh, <laughs> um, delegitimizing the media in Canada and replacing it with your own news would be a really crappy title that would sell like six books. So I decided to translate that into common English, mm. and um, because really that's what it's about is delegitimizing uh, civil discourse. It's delegitimizing the media's role in the system, and the media does have an important role in our political system. And if if you get through this book and you go read my book about Second World War press censorship, which is also my doctoral thesis, you'll you'll see a really good description of what the media's role is in Canadian politics. And it was actually something that the government set out to preserve in the Second World War when we were when we were losing the war, and we were losing the war through most of it. Uh, and this government is setting out to destroy. So. So, you know, it, it, Mackenzie King did realize the media has this role where it, it relays information from the public to the politicians so they understand what's going on in the country. And it, and it relays political discourse from, the, from parliament to the people. So there's this constant circle, this sort of feedback thing, and Harper set out to kill that. And, and one way he's done that is by delegitimizing the media. So when you hear the words like uh, lamestream media or the media party, that is the language of delegitimization of media. Delegitimization, if I put that across the front of a book, would be a 22-point type. So I said, well, 
you know, this, this is a, a kind of a worn out phrase, but people have heard it and they know what it means. So right. I, I picked that, I picked Bill Messengers and, and the media, uh, not only is being, you know, killed by, by Harper's very corporate style media control, but it's also being killed by its own mistakes and by its own faulty business practices, which I get into in a chapter in the book. There was a. I'm actually blanking on the gentleman's name. Perhaps you'll know who I'm talking about. But there was a. There was a, a clip from the. You know, a conservative uh, party, uh, conservative supporter that came out of a thing famously and and you know screamed at some journalists a few weeks ago. And the discussion after the sort of immediate sort of giggling uh, passed on as far as people who didn't agree with that person's message. Uh, there was some talk, of course, is that part of the problem, part of the serious problem here, and and some other journalists that I've been reading has been that you know there's a number of journalists for journalistic purposes who have uh, what could be called ghost accounts where they'll sign up for various parties so that they can see what these parties are telling their supporters. And so there was some discussion about, well, actually, you know, this person isn't very insane. He actually, it would be quite a logical position for what this man was upset about if the only place you got your information was the Conservative Party fundraising newsletters, because that is the language that you see in them. And there was there was a number of, you know, screenshots and direct quotes of, you know, the, the liberals control all the media and all this stuff. Right. And it's, it's, it's really... It's really playing a wicked number on our on our democracy. I wonder if you can comment on that further. Yeah, it's, it is, it, and the, and some of the people who who do this are very high up in the PMO, and one of them is running in um, in Peter McKay's writing, old writing in, in Nova Scotia. So you know, there's a very good chance of, of this guy Lecce be getting into, or Delory, pardon me, getting into Parliament and, and quite likely being a minister, especially if the Tories don't elect anybody else down there, which looks like more and more the case. Uh, it's uh, yeah, media people do sign up for ghost accounts. And I remember, oh God, 25 years ago when I was writing for the Globe and Mail, I had myself put on a Green Party mailing list. And then I wrote something about, because um, I wanted to know what the Green Party was doing because it was a new party. And it there was there was actually a provincial election where a Green Party candidate in Perry Sound area looked like he was going to get elected to the Ontario legislature. Now, it fizzled out, but... But I got into, you know, somebody dug that out and, and used that against me and, and tried to get me canned by saying that I was a Green Party supporter, when basically all I wanted back in the day was to get the flyers they were sending to everybody else. Um, and there's, there's, there is that sort of personal attacking going on in the media. And, and this guy, who's, everybody called him angry Tory or whatever. Mm. But I think most people know the clip we're talking about here, the guy who basically tees off on Lori Graham and accuses her of being a tax cheat. I mean, he 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 represents something. Now, of course, he's he's on the sort of the, the the nutter end of the spectrum, but what he's doing is exactly what the Tories have been doing, which is attack the idea that the media has any place in the system and that it does any important job, and attack the media personally as dishonest people. So, so if you if you look at that test, he does both parts of that test, mm. and um, I doubt that he was that the Tories, you know, disavow him in, in any serious way because that's what they've been doing in a more sophisticated way for ages. And he just basically picked up on on the mechanism of that and then started plugging in his own crazy facts. Mm. But, but what he did, that line of logic has been used constantly by Harper's people. Hmm. And that that idea of sort of the ideological bubble. I mean, we've been uh, follow, we didn't cover it on the show, but some of the hosts here off off air have d- discussed. You know, there's been some information coming about about like things like Facebook, who were who were designing posts and and actually controlling what you see to create echo chambers. So if you tend yeah. to interact a lot with lefty media, then you got a lot a lot of left wing 
you know, articles and stuff like that. And so you people can, if you're not aware of the, the fact that Facebook is doing this, it can seem like, hey, the whole country agrees with me. Where are this 30% that want to support uh, the conservatives? And it's because that social media, is, as useful as it is, is also very effectively creating echo chambers where we, well, they, we really have a distorted view. They also seem to be taking people's names off, like just randomly, and saying such and such supports or such and such likes. Mm-hmm. Tori said, and I saw my sister's name on one the other day, and I was pretty surprised because that's really quite unlikely to happen. So um, I don't know whether there's anything out there where you know, uh, like Mark, you know, the Harper government believes in uh, Keystone XL and, and and greater development of the oil sands with me liking it out there. It's, it's quite <laughs> possible. Um, you know, it's that kind of dishonesty. I mean, even I just I just finished a book on the. Um, on the uh, ISIS uses of social media, and they're quite a bit more honest, I suppose. At least they don't go out and, and, and pay Facebook and Twitter to um, to, to put false messaging out. They, they do it they do it themselves rather than uh, than they go all corporate on everybody. Well, it's funny. It's funny you bring that uh, angle up as well, because I mean, the, the big thing that's going on right now, of course, is the the scare tactics, and you know, be afraid yeah. of this, be afraid of you know, be afraid of everything, and it's a, it's a it's a you know, right wing trick that's as old as time. Get people terrified so that they so that they don't vote in their own interest. They vote as a knee jerk reaction to to something, and and he's, yep. Harper's been using it very effectively to take it, uh, the eyes away from his record. But what it I, was uh, a winner. It was a winner in Germany in 1933. So why wouldn't it work here? Yeah. And well, and that's that's interesting thing because you know some of the stuff, in, and of course you know I'm, someone's going to take me out of context and go ahead. There's nothing I can do about it. But um, yeah. you know, it's funny because it, I keep seeing things about seeing news about um, what Harper's uh, doing, and it, and it keeps triggering the same button in my brain, which is how are they any different from ISIS? And of course, someone's like, oh, well, they're not cutting off people's heads. Okay, relax. Let me explain what I mean. What I mean is that yeah. they're doing things like burning books. They're trying to ban opposition. They're trying to silence. Like it's not. There's no honest political disagreement and discourse here. It's about someone trying to exert power and using it to crush their opposition and 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 i think people are really upset and i think people are ready for change largely and of course we know that if you combine quote unquote the left that there's way more of those people than there is that are going to elect stephen harper but because of our political system it sort of lets this work and so what i'm you know it's sort of what i find is interesting now is that even the liberals are talking are making sounds like they want to change the voting structure because there's i think outside of political maneuvering there's this general understanding about stephen harper is really making it crystal clear to everybody even his supporters how insanely broken this system is they just seem to love it because it's broken in their favor at the moment yeah well they they didn't like it too much when the liberals were winning uh over split you know right of center votes either like Really does. It's really what was going around is coming around on on the so-called left. I don't. I don't really buy the idea that you can add the NDP and liberal voters together. I think a lot of the of the liberal voters would actually go to the conservatives before they would support the NDP. Um, but that's. I'm, we're, we're getting off on a bit of a tangent here. Uh, what I do think we're seeing um, now. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that they're. I would say they'd like to be ISIS. I think that would be a huge stretch. But I do think. That, that power has got to them. I, I think in some ways, they certainly talked a good fight when, when Stephen Harper was opposition leader about about things like accountability. So they, they know what the right thing is. It's just that doing the wrong thing is so wonderfully profitable. And, um, and, and for the next person who comes along and wins on these weird three-way splits, you know, who, who will, you know, the liberals now saying that they're going to sniffing around about proportional representation, if you think for a minute that if the liberals get in, they're going to do proportional representation, 
I want a, a, a few grams of what you're smoking because it's not going to happen. And they're going to say, well, we, you know, we did run it by you know, in provincial uh, provincial referenda. And people turned it down and they really don't want to kick that can over. Now, I used to be, I used to buy into the arguments against proportional representation because I liked the idea that some guy or some woman in some place, you know, in some, you know, nowhere Saskatchewan can go to join, can join a political party, go to a nomination meeting, get nominated, go to Ottawa. That it's not some central office picking the candidates, but we're seeing more and more of the central offices are picking the candidates anyway. And then the candidates aren't even making themselves available to local voters uh, in all candidates meetings or anything or to the local media. And if, that, if that's the way it's going to be, then we might as well go proportional representation and have very centralized politics in this country. It, 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 one of the worst things that's come out of this election, well, there's a long, long list of bad things, but one of the worst things is this business, and I talk about it in the book because I kind of saw it coming, that the Conservatives would no longer engage with local voters at all. No, you know, Skip the all-candidates meetings like they did in Ottawa, where nobody would show up to a citywide all-candidates meeting from the Conservatives, uh, refuse to talk to media, refuse to give interviews. We saw that come up really early in the campaign. Uh, Glenn McGregor of the Ottawa Citizens Guard contacting all of these candidates, and they were uh, on the conservative candidates. were turning them down for interviews, and you say, "Okay, how does representation work now? Who are you representing? If you will not talk to citizens, and if you will not talk to the media, who are you representing? Are you you're just a party hack? And if we're going to par- vote for party hacks, we might as well vote off a list, just the way they do in in, in Europe." All right. Well, Mark, I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us today on The Green Majority. Again, Mark Bury, who the author of Anytime. The Messenger. Thank uh, you. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, check out the book, folks. Uh, it will. Uh, you could basically flip to any page, and you will either learn something, laugh, or be terrified. I guarantee you one of those three. Uh, we're going to go to a music break here on The Green Majority. You're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM here in Toronto, or possibly on a podcast, or one of our wonderful and very appreciated community partners all over Canada and now in the United States as well. Uh, we'll be right back after this music break. From rivers just gone, TV on celebrity, blind to the ground, out of the ocean going up, while the lakes are going down. Syria is warning the humankind, we run out of lake, we got killing on our mind. If you can't happen here, but California on fire, find me on mission when the waves get high. I got kids on my mind of a different kind, baby line mothers on the ground just crying. I feel knowing the solution is here with a switch ring. Now 
back. I'm going to keep it tight on Music Breaks today because we just have so much content to get through. Coming up uh, next with an interview with uh, Matthew Rimmer, Dr. Matthew Rimmer uh, from the University of Queensland in Australia um, about the TPP. First, I want to mention, though, that uh, that was uh, Earth Emergency by friend of the show Gaia is I. And there will be a link to that and all our music, as always, on the page if you'd like to check out more of him or see the really awesome video that, uh, that they shot for that song. Um, but as I said, coming up now is uh, Matthew Rimmer, uh, who is the Professor of Intellectual Property and Innovation Law at Queensland University of Technology in Queensland, uh, uh, Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. Uh, I had an hour and 15 minute interview with him on Wednesday. No, we're not playing the whole thing right now. This is just br- but a brief clip. Um, but you're about to learn a whole lot about the TPP. I, I said to my uh, Matthew after the interview um, that I'd never learned so many new things I did not know before in one interview before, although it was long, so that's kind of cheating. Uh, however, without further ado, please get your ears ready. This is need-to-know information, folks, about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, huge implications, potentially doing things like, for all we, uh, for all we know, much more, but we're talking about things that might actually make it even harder to deal with climate change among changing the way the internet works, uh, receding, uh, reducing the amount of sovereignty that countries have, uh, like Canada. This is a need to know issue. So please do get some popcorn, get your coffee, sit down and pay attention to Dr. Matthew Rimmer. So my first question to you is what do we know and, and how upset should we be? The Trans-Pacific Partnership is a blockbuster trade deal spanning the Pacific Rim. So it covers countries such as Canada and the United States and Mexico and Peru and Chile, Australia and New Zealand, Singapore, uh, Malaysia, Brunei, Vietnam and Japan was a late entrant. The Trans-Pacific Partnership is not a traditional trade deal. It certainly deals with some topics like market access and, and tariffs, that relate to trade, but it also deals with questions such as intellectual property, the environment, public health, uh, pharmaceutical drugs, uh, labour rights, questions about investment, uh, regulation of finance uh, and corporations. The agreement was recently uh, finalised in talks this week in Atlanta um, after a great deal of overtime. There's been a great deal of controversy over the radical secrecy surrounding the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So this agreement has been negotiated uh, by the executive members of the participating nations, but really the negotiations have been dictated in many ways by the industry advisory groups who inform and educate the positions of the United States Trade Representative. So... We have this very strange situation in which there is asymmetrical information about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The problem has been that uh, the negotiators and the industry advisors are very well aware of the content of the agreement of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but legislators, civil society and the general public uh, have no idea or clue as to what is in the agreement. In certain circumstances, the United States has allowed legislators to look at copies of the Trans-Pacific Partnership subject to uh, strong clauses about confidentiality so that they are not being allowed to look at the or talk about the agreement that they've seen for several years. 
In Australia, a few politicians took up the offer and went to the dungeons of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and had a look at the agreement, but many of the politicians refused to do that. It's quite a radical situation that such a deal should have been negotiated within this fashion, uh, given that it's going to have such a sweeping impact across uh, the parliaments of a number of different um, members of the uh, Pacific Rim Pact. Uh, sorry, I just wanted to ask you, for, uh, just for clarification, you, you said there that many, uh, you used the word refused when you said some members of parliament there. Was that, was that am, I, am I reading between the lines there correctly that this was because they did not wish to be under the legal requirement that they couldn't discuss it? Or what was, what do you, why did you say so it that way? So Senator Peter Wish Wilson of the Australian Greens refused to uh, take up the offer of viewing the text of the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, because he'd be subject to a gag order and wouldn't be allowed to discuss what he'd seen in Parliament or with uh, his constituents. So he said, as you know, part of a representative government, he thought that it was essential that he was able to kind of talk about trade deals to the large public. So as a result, we've been very much dependent upon leaks to whistleblowing organisations to gain an understanding of the content of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And WikiLeaks has played a very kind of key role in informing the public about the content of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So Julian Assange was considered to have been a spent force and locked up within the Ecuadorian embassy uh, in London. Uh, but he's been quite astute and strategic at disseminating some key leaks that he has got of draft chapters of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So we're quite indebted to WikiLeaks for our current knowledge about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The intellectual property chapter has been leaked a couple of times by WikiLeaks and more recently by the Knowledge Ecology International. The investment chapter, with its very controversial investor-state dispute settlement regime, um, was leaked by WikiLeaks. The very cursory environment chapter um, was published by WikiLeaks and the health annex to the Trans-Pacific Partnership was also revealed by WikiLeaks and a few other odds and ends, communiques, some statements about state-owned enterprises and things like that. But, you know, there are 30 chapters to the Trans-Pacific Partnership and thus far we've only seen draft provisional versions of a handful of those chapters. Even though the talks have been finalised, the public do not have any access to the text of the final agreement of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And that is outrageous, that we have politicians across the Pacific Rim spruiking the Trans-Pacific Partnership while denying the public access to those texts. So it's been notable that um, Stephen Harper has been busy promoting the Trans-Pacific Partnership during the Canadian election, saying as part of his pledge to protect our economy. Malcolm Turnbull in Australia has been saying that it's a foundation stone for our future posterity. Uh, Barack Obama, President of the United States, has been saying that the Trans-Pacific Partnership is a progressive 21st century trade deal. Uh, John Key, the leader of the New Zealand uh, party in charge of, uh, of their parliament, um, has been saying that it will boost exports for Kiwis. But there's been a lack of rigorous empirical analysis of the impacts of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and who will be the winners and losers in terms of the deal. 
I, I have a, I have a, I have a joke and then a serious question. My joke is, can't we assume that that's a lie? Because if it was true, he would have been restricted by the gag order to say it's progressive. Well, the executives seem to have freedom to talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, so the, the irony is that um, some members uh, of the executives have a very good understanding of what's in the agreement and that they feel that they have a great deal of liberty and freedom to discuss the agreement. Uh, so uh, that really, again, highlights the asymmetrical nature of the information available in relation to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And there's also been a lot of scandal that the United States Trade Representative is apparently a client um, of the uh, National Security Agency, the NSA, and there's been a few scandals that... Uh, the NSA have been engaging in surveillance of the trade negotiations around the Trans-Pacific Partnership. President Barack Obama had to apologise to the leader of Japan over spying on Japan in relation to the trade agreement and climate change and some other matters as well. So it's a very kind of strange situation. And in Australia, some commentators like Michael West have highlighted, highlighted the absurdity of the situation that we're presented with. His point was that you wouldn't buy a used car uh, without properly inspecting it. Why would you accept a blockbuster trade agreement without subjecting it to proper rational scrutiny and analysis and see whether the claims that are being made about it um, stood up to uh, proper critical attention. And it's been very disturbing that the United States Trade Representative and President Barack Obama have been making some very outlandish claims about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. They have been engaging in greenwashing and saying that the day is good for the environment. They've been trying to say that it provides the strongest uh, protection and enforcement of labour rights of any trade agreement and they've been also saying that it will protect public health. And there's been a great deal of scepticism to such statements. So let's, let's talk about that scepticism, because there, there's one thing that, that, that I've seen that was part of the WikiLeaks reaction, which, which is not simply cast, seem to cast doubt on that very statement. It seems to, it seems to prove it to be a lie. The, the, the provision that I'm talking about, and, and again, this was part of a draft copy of a sample of a test. We, we have no idea what is actually in the, the what will or is in the final agreement. But what was leaked by WikiLeaks, among many other things, even from this very small sample, uh, was essentially a court that super Seeds our national courts, which is to say that there would be a court above our governments that if a law that was being passed by a government, whether it be local or national government, uh, that if it affected, and the keyword phrasing here was future profits, uh, that, the, uh, that a corporation uh, would be able to sue the government. What government from what party would not go and try and find out if they're going to get sued ahead of time before passing the law? And so what we have here is a de facto capitulation of uh, sovereignty to multinational corporations who answer to no one. There's been a great deal of controversy over the inclusion of investment chapter and the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, the investment chapter has an investor state dispute settlement regime, which would enable foreign investors to go to an international tribunal to complain about government regulations that adversely affected their foreign investments. Initially, investor state dispute settlement was designed 
to deal with the problem of exporters working in foreign jurisdictions where there was weak rule of law. So initially, investor rights were designed to provide a reassurance to um, investors that they were safe to invest in a foreign country without fear of reprisal of their assets being nationalised. Over the past couple of decades, though, creative, innovative global law firms have interpreted investor clauses in a very broad way and investor clauses are being deployed, not just only in traditional matters about um, protecting companies from nationalisation of their assets, but in a whole host of public policy areas like public health and the environment and financial regulation. Um, and investor state disputes on the clauses have been very protean and have been able to be deployed in a wide range of different public policy areas. Critics of investor state disputes on the clauses have called them Trojan horse trade clauses. So the Council of Canadians, for instance, have protested outside the Canadian Parliament with a, a Trojan horse, uh, complaining about the impact of such clauses upon sovereignty and upon the rule of law. As an Australian, we have a very personal experience of the impact of investor state dispute settlement. Uh, under the Australian Labor government, we introduced pioneering new plain packaging of tobacco products legislation. Our High Court of Australia uh, found that that regime was constitutional in a 6-1 decision uh, and held that it was not an acquisition of property of the tobacco companies. The response of one of the tobacco companies, Philip Morris, was to shift some of its assets off to Hong Kong so it could then bring an investor action against Australia under an obscure Hong Kong-Australian investment agreement. So that has been highly controversial. Um, notably, the Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia, Justice French, has complained about the implications of investor state dispute settlement. He says that the judiciary has not been consulted about investor clauses, that uh, investment tribunals are not the same as courts, that arbitrators are not the same as judges, and he's very concerned about domestic decisions being subject to collateral attack. For instance, his plain packaging ruling, uh, but also, for instance, the rulings of the Supreme Court of Canada in respect of Ally Lilly and rejecting its drug patents. So he has expressed deep concerns about how investor clauses will affect the rule of law and the judiciary and the role of domestic courts. And our Australian Parliament has had similar concerns about how investor clauses might have a chilling effect upon lawmaking in Australia. So Senator Peter Wish-Wilson of the Australian Greens put forward a bill to prohibit the inclusion of investor clauses in trade agreements. The Honourable Melissa Park from Fremantle, a member of the Australian Labor Party and uh, former United Nations lawyer, has been very concerned about how investor clauses will affect democracy. And there have been a number of other politicians within the Australian Parliament who have been very concerned about how investor clauses will affect public health, the environment, 
labour rights and financial regulation. And I want to just uh, underline some of what you were uh, what you were just describing there, which was uh, I, I smiled while you, nobody obviously saw me, but I smiled when you made the reference to the to the Philip Morrow case because of that was made quite famous by John Oliver coming covering that on his program. Uh, it's a, if you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's both very interesting and and very educational and and very funny. But what I want to underline there was that this is pre TPP. This is this is a situation that is about to get very much worse. Mm. There seemed to be a number of qualifications and exclusions that took place in relation to the investors' state dispute some regime in terms of the Atlanta talks. So one of the exclusions that was finally added was in relation to tobacco. So there seems to be, after pressure from uh, Dr. Michael Chan, the head of the World Health Organization, and billionaire philanthropists like uh, Mike Bloomberg and uh, Bill Gates, Barack Obama seems to have conceded that there's need for further protection against actions from big tobacco. So there is some text there apparently um, to prevent investor actions being brought in the future by tobacco companies against members of the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, who are trying to implement um, tobacco control measures. But from my perspective, it's not necessarily comprehensive, really, uh, there needs to be a rollout of the World Health Organization's Framework Convention on Tobacco Control through, uh, across the Pacific Rim. Uh, so there's a need to ensure that um, the Pacific Rim isn't Marlboro country, but uh, you know there's plain packaging across the Pacific Rim, given that it's been such an effective measure. There's obviously been huge controversy about the application of investor-state dispute settlement in environmental matters. So my colleague at the Australian National University, Dr. Carla Tenhara, wrote an excellent book for Cambridge University Press called The Expropriation of Environmental Governance. Her thesis was that companies were deploying investor clauses to challenge environmental laws, regulations and policies. And her book was very prescient in highlighting how investor clauses would be used to attack um, environmental protections in relation to air, land, water and climate change. And that's certainly been borne out by some of the experiences with investor clauses, particularly um, in the Americas. So one of the reasons that I'm visiting Canada is to inspect and examine some of the investor state dispute settlement battles that have been taking place. One of the most notable ones has been the action by the gas company, Lone Pine, against the Government of Canada uh, over a moratorium in Quebec um, in respect of fracking uh, alongside the St Lawrence River. So even though this was a provincial decision, nonetheless, this gas company uh, has brought an action from the United States under the North American Free Trade Agreement saying that such a moratorium will have an adverse impact upon its future profits. And there's been a great concern across the Pacific Rim over this important um, dispute, particularly in Australia, the Lock the Gate movement, an alliance between farmers and environmentalists, has fought against the uh, introduction of investor clauses because it's very kind of concerned that it will stymie their efforts to stop um, fracking and coal seam gas and coal projects. And in the United States, um, particularly after the documentary Gasland, there's been a lot of concern about the activities of gas companies and their contempt 
for environmental re regulations in respect of air, land and water. So that dispute is a very contentious one and certainly highlights some of the larger concerns about the impact of the Trans-Pacific Partnership upon the environment. All right, that is uh, the part one of our interview with Dr. Uh, my, uh, Matthew Rimmer. We will be having more on a future program that was a very long conversation. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Please do take the opportunity to go back. And even more than usual, if you would uh, please help us share that episode. I think the TPP is a massive obstacle to doing anything about a wide range of uh, environmental problems. And it, it is very uh, intentionally not known about and not understood properly. So please do even more than usual. Please help us share this episode uh, and point people to that interview. I think it's critically, critically important. We'll be back with a little bit more. Uh, Stefan has decided that the show is a little bit too down. He's going to try and bring mm -hmm. us up after the break here with some mostly positive news stories. <laughs> uh, and uh, we're going to go now to our second and final music break, uh, which is actually from a, I believe, a local group. Some, uh, some of the folks here, this was sent to us on our Contact Us page. That's also a shout out that if you're a Canadian band and want your music played on the Green Majority, that... Uh, if you email it to us uh, from the contact us page at greenmajority.ca, we will at least consider it. Uh, these folks contacted us, and uh, and I agreed to play it on the show today. So this is a uh, uh, an homage slash cover of uh, of another song called "Would He Lie to You" uh, by the Special Interest Group. Really tight on the music breaks here today, folks, because we got a lot to get through. Only 15 minutes left in the show. Man, time flies when you're trying to find out what global powers are trying to do to screw you next, huh? That's, a, that, that's the quote, right? That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm seating control now. I've, I've had the lion's share today program. People are probably very sick of my voice. So, Stefan, please both cheer us up and, and some variety in, in tone here. All right. Uh, so the, the first – I warn you right now. The first uh, story is not a cheer-up story, although I am turning it into a game. Uh, so that's kind of fun. <laughs> uh, and the game is called uh, Guess Who Said That? Ooh. So I'm going to read out a quote. 
and then I'm going to give you half a second to write it down uh, or just think of the answer if you're driving because I don't want you to be running while driving. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then I will tell you who said that. So the quote itself is, Agenda-driven groups often take individual documents or quotes out of context in an attempt to distort the facts, advance their agenda, and stop legitimate research. So I'm going to give you half a second to, uh, to, to guess on this one. I, was, I would sing the Jeopardy music, but I don't know if that's copyrighted. Uh, thanks, TPP. Uh, and, and now I'll announce that it, that is Monsanto. Monsanto actually said ding, that. Ding, ding, ding. That is their quote. Uh, because apparently there's more organized attacks on science than we thought. Uh, specifically, uh, what we love about this story, um, and thanks to MH for, uh, for, for, for requesting it, uh, is that it's the kind of opposite of the entire first person, the guest we had, uh, because basically in this, this story, uh, it's, we have the Freedom of Information Act, uh, an act, uh, an act that's turning 50 years old, uh, in the States. It, which which is now being coming under which is like generally considered to be pro democracy generally considered to be a good thing uh, I would say by almost anyone who's ever had to do research into what the government is doing uh, being attacked by Monsanto uh, because they believe people are using that as a way to attack quote unquote legi- or le- an organized attack on science and legitimate research uh, ma what are your thoughts on this so I think this is a really interesting case because we talk about corporate capture of government. And this speaks to corporate capture potentially of science and the intersection between those two things. So I believe to sort of summarize the case um, that Monsanto is is upset at the fact that some scientists that maybe have spoken on their behalf are being called out um, through the use of the Freedom of Information Act. Now, I haven't followed this case closely. It's an American case. But as we know here in Canada, Freedom of Information Acts are very central to democratic process and transparency. And we've seen our media actually use our act quite effectively in some fairly high-profile cases. In Toronto, it was it was uh, very prevalent in the Rob Ford case. We've seen it in the Senate scandals. And so we know that it's really, really important. Now, of course, we don't want to see instruments of government being used uh, in witch hunts. Um, But, you know, what I would suggest, what I would put to everyone is that if you're a scientist um, and you're receiving government funding, which is the case here, which is why the Freedom of Information Act applies, you've somehow placed yourself in the public domain. You've placed your work in the public domain. And I think with that comes an added level of scrutiny that you have to accept when you do that. I'm not passing judgment on these scientists. I'm not familiar with their cases. But... Anyone that is receiving public funding knows that when they speak out in relation to their work, especially if it's scientific work, they are going to face that added level of scrutiny. Yeah. And well, you see it all the time with climate. What's the way I find so funny about that quote is that quote is you could be pulled out of almost any single person who's talking about the attacks on climate change or people who are trying to convince you that climate change is not real. That quote is like I I almost wonder if Monsanto chose that wording specifically to to put themselves in basically the same side as people who accept climate change because the wording is so similar. I, I If you honestly Google that quote, I bet you you'll find four or five other people who have said it before Monsanto and all of them would be about climate change. It reminded me of the Simpsons episode, the House of Horror thing, when it's like the two aliens getting for presidents. Like, ha <laughs> you have to vote for one of us. Uh, it's a two-party system. <laughs> yeah, go I ahead. Vote for Nader. <laughs> go ahead. Throw your, throw your the, vote away. But the idea, yeah, no, I think, I think, I think you're very likely correct. It, it seems to me that to be like, well, you can't have it both ways. Either you're pro-science or your get science. I think it's a very interesting move by Monsanto. Yeah, uh, and it's like it's it's 
it's it's it's what I find so it's it's a classic move by large by a large sort of corporate corporate entity mm-hmm. to sort of be like no we're grassroots look you're attacking science and like by all means do all the fair legitimate science whatsoever but I'm I'm not so much concerned about the people who are defending Monsanto I think they will be I think they will be fine everybody mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> fine and wealthy uh, but the so but I want to actually get back to, the, the, the other thing I want to touch, touch on that was because we did talk re- earlier about the media and uh, and our first guest really talked talked about this sort of fairness in the media and i didn't think that we fully uh we, we which was great but i think we wanted i want to sort of expand on what we sort of what you mean when you say that uh which is that in the media when you sort of let both sides when you sort of when you whenever you're like driven and driven and driven to just like no we have to have both sides of an issue to have a conversation what you're really defu- really doing there is you're is you're always giving a voice to the status quo and you're always deferring to power because the idea that you know, if Coke wants to be in the media, Coke can just buy media attention. Uh, the people who have worked for three or four years to you know to build up a, a enough of a voice to get heard at all, um, to then be like, okay, so we've we, to put them on the same level as a, as a major corporation or as or as the government in in in, in that that well, we have to listen to both sides is. Is 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 basically being like, well, you put all this work in, like you did, you did all this work. It really, really matters to you. But also, let's just let what power has to think about this. It's always giving a voice to power. Um, when when there's like when society isn't fair, the the object of the media should be to highlight that, not to continue to defer to the status quo. And that's what sort of this false dichotomy constantly provides. It's almost ability. like it's almost like we need a nationalized public broadcaster that's uh, <laughs> not influenced by money. Um, yeah, somebody should do that. That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, uh, and so that's so that is the end of the sad news. Uh, okay, so there's you know there's the, now it's happy news with sad caveats, uh, which is as, <laughs> which is which is as positive as we get on this show. We should, we should just call this segment "Happy News Asterix." <laughs> yeah, um, not valid in all provinces. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, and the first one is uh, a couple months ago, around a month and a half ago, we had a whole conversation about about how the the head of the chairman of the of the upcoming climate uh, talks in Paris was concerned because he didn't think the talks were moving along fast enough. and didn't think they actually had the capacity to actually have a conversation basically his fear was it doesn't matter the intentions everyone brings to this if we regardless of the intention that we have here if you don't actually have enough work done on the text itself nothing will get done um, and and the good news to some extent is that uh, as of as of today or, or recently, 146 countries, uh, which is representing 87 percent of all gold missions, have submitted plans to the summit. Um, and and so like I, w- I really wanted to go with so they're saying there's a chance, Ryan, uh, because like having any plan at all is better than not having a plan. Uh, and I think there's a dramatically um, a dramatic importance to providing this uh, area where. Even if the plans aren't strong enough, having a mechanism to then implement stronger plans is is is, is providing the capacity to actually get something done. Uh, if everyone walked in with no plan at all, we didn't matter. Again, they, everyone could be like, "Yes, we definitely should do this." But if you have no plan, nothing's going to happen. Uh, but then, of course, at, in our conversation during the break, uh, Ma had a had a slight caveat to this. Yeah, so I agree. We have. I think it's really good news. We have some semblance of an international plan <laughs> coming together, and I believe. So far, the way the numbers have been crunched, those targets all amount to hovering somewhere 
slightly above the two degrees Celsius threshold that we're trying to get below. So this is good progress. I do, however, and this is the caveat, I do, however, have to point out that Canada isn't really doing its part. The target we came to the table with um, is 30% below 2005 levels by 2030. That is not in line with the science to keep us under that two degree Celsius threshold. Um, And so really, you know, that undermines an international process where people have to come to the table. I just want to point out, because we're in election season, that the parties do differ on this. And I think people need to be informed when they're they're making their voting considerations. Both the Greens and the New Democrats have come with this target of 80 percent below 1990 levels of greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Now, that is in line with the science. The Liberals have yet to come out with a target. In fact, right now they're saying they're going to bring the Tory target to the COP and then work with the provinces after. So all this is to say that, you know, as Canadians, we've got to levy some pressure on these parties. We don't know what political arrangement we're going to have post-election, and we may have a lot of work to do uh, to keep this on the agenda. And the last thing I'll add is we've just released a little short funny video to get people informed on where the parties stand on climate change, including these targets. And I think, you know, Canadians, let's go in strong on this and let's pressure the heck out of these candidates. Yeah. Uh, And there's two very specific things I want to jump out from what you just mentioned. One is the 2005 levels grinds my gears to no end. I, I've, I've gone on this so many times, it just absolutely makes me livid. Uh, because, of course, that's the Harper government choosing the highest possible emissions to reduce from. Uh, like, let's do 2007 levels, shall we? Uh, like, like be, the Harper government basically is refusing to, take, to re- refusing to take acceptance of the recessions while demanding that they get credit for the, for the carbon decrease that happened because of those recessions. Uh, and that's ridiculous and it annoys me. Done with that confidence. Uh, the second thing is, I would interesting with the liberals. Uh, just from all the research I had done during the Kyoto attempts in early to, the early two thousands, um, that's such an interesting way for liberals to go because they sort of did the exact opposite with Kyoto and got burned. Um, and so I'm, 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 we have to demand. Like what I think part of this is that the provinces have so much control that it's not just enough to get a federal government that's on board. Every single province has to be on board and has to and has to yeah. actually fight for a target. Absolutely, and the provinces need to be part of the discussion. However, you know, in terms of the way international law works, right. you don't go with a substandard target and then try to figure it out later. So I think this is a critical time to get the provinces on board. They're actually showing more leadership right now than the federal government, and you know. It, it can get very confusing, I think, for Canadians with all these targets. But the point is that there's an international commitment, and a lot of organizations have come out with these political comparisons. Ours is up on our website, which is stepupcanada.ca. Um, but others have done a lot of work, and it's important for us to start engaging with this and figuring out what it actually means, because it's going to have a profound effect on our future and everyone else's. Yeah. And a mass percentage of provinces already have a price on carbon. So if you talk about capacity building for a federal government has something to work with, uh, the provinces have stepped up. The federal government has to do its job as being a way to sort of let's make it all work together. Um, all right. And yeah, and I'm afraid we're, we're out of time. We got about two minutes left. I just want to uh, do about two minutes. Am I wrong? No, three. Three minutes. All right. Three minutes. Well, I wanted to, to first of all, uh, 
but we didn't do sort of any, well, virtually no self-promotion today. So just as far as getting the extras, we have, uh, as I said, about 50 news stories today that we talked about, like two of them. If you want to see the rest of our top picks for this week's news, you can actually vote for the news and tell us which ones you think are more important than others. And we will attempt to get interviews based on that. That led to our uh, interview today on the TPP. It led to me uh, talking to actually both of our interviews today were inspired by that. So if you want to have an influence on what we talk about on the show, do vote for the news. All found at greenmajority.ca, where you will also find today's show post, where you will also find links to step up canada and the uh, video that ma mentioned a moment ago uh and also i wanted to uh take one other moment to clarify uh, uh earlier as well it was sort of my my one other uh thing from the show when we, we were talking to mark burry early in the uh, earlier in the episode i make sort of an offhand comment about harper and isis i wanted to sort of clarify what i meant by that because even he was like i'm not sure i'd go that far <laughs> I, I was not trying to say i want to say what i was was and was not trying to say what i was not trying to say is that they want to be isis i do not anticipate that harper wants to be beheading anyone i don't think that he's a secret muslim nor do i think that's even a bad thing if he was uh none of those implications were the things uh that i mentioned to say what i was saying was that for somebody who's making quote-unquote radical islam to be the enemy and the, the target of this uh, country he's doing an awful lot of things like extreme the sh- extreme people regardless of what religion uh seem to be big fans of so he's uh, throwing away all the books uh the books were full of giant research and very useful information uh getting rid of long-form census anything that conflicts uh with his uh interest and oh well in the meanwhile we've also got reports here of while well, they're pulling money from science libraries and throwing away books and research and silencing muzzling scientists and teachers they have been lavishing funds on not just oil, but religion. Sounds familiar. Um, doing a silencing the opposition, trying to intimidate people, creating a very uh, for someone who's very concerned about Sharia laws, implementing uh, is proposing to implement uh, fashion bans. That sounds like a Sharia type of fashion police that you might find in the scary, scary Iran. Uh, so that's what I meant. I just wanted to be clear on it and to make a point that uh, this is not about civil discourse and a disagreement about the future of this country. Uh, it's about a power mad maniac and reasonable mm-hmm. people trying to fight for having a future. And that's where we'll end today. Thanks for listening to the Green Majority. Stay tuned for more exciting election coverage next week. Have a good Green Week, folks and we'll talk to you all real soon.